0: If you happen to be watching the football game on the side while I'm speaking, just, just reserve your applause or boos until a correct moment in the sermon, so I don't know. I would appreciate it. Uh, well, I'm glad you guys are here. and um, we are, We're looking at one of my favorite stories in Scripture tonight. Tonight we are looking at, uh, in Luke chapter 4, we're looking at Jesus' first sermon in his home church where he grew up. And uh, if you're not familiar with the story, you think, oh, wow, his first sermon, he gets to go back to his home synagogue, and you may be tempted to ask, so did it go well or did it go poorly? And the answer, of course, would be yes. And That's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite stories in Scripture, uh, because it is all over the place, and it shows a lot about who we are, uh, and uh, it it maybe tells a little bit about what it's like to preach, too, Uh, although I've never... uh, threatened to be thrown off a cliff yet but the night is young so let's see what happens but this scene uh, in in Luke chapter 4 functions as a couple ways uh, for a couple things in Luke really you could look at this story and see it as a cliff notes for the entire gospel of Luke what happens in uh, this story is what you see happening throughout the entire book really it's almost like a snapshot of what's coming and so it's, it's good for that reason but it's also a perfect example of something that's kind of uh, wired incorrectly about us as human beings. It it tells a little bit on us, tells a story on us that may not be very pretty. It's a perfect example of how we can completely miss God and miss the good news right in front of us, right? It can serve as a warning or a wake-up call to us. And how we have the knack to make even the best news into bad news some days, right? And we're going to read this story in two parts and kind of talk about it. Because it really is two separate scenes that happen. And, uh, and our scene starts with Jesus, again, headed back to his hometown in Nazareth. Now, just to kind of give you a set the setting here, uh, Nazareth, they're, they're thinking that at its largest during Jesus' lifetime, there may have been 400 people in the entire town, right? It's mostly, honestly, extended families, kind of a clan uh, almost back in the day, right? So we're not talking about a huge group of people. And when we say he's going back to kind of his home and to the synagogue, this would be people who knew him. This would be people who knew Jesus when he was this big, who would have been around him. They, they would have been familiar with uh, the story and his family, maybe even the uh, questionable parts of his family. Uh, uh, birth, right? And his mother's impregnation and all those kind of things. We don't really know what kind of rumors were out there about that. But they would have known Jesus, right? And so he's going back in this setting. Luke chapter 4, verses 16, uh, and we'll go through 22 to start with says this When he came back to Nazareth where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. He stood up to read. This would have been a very common thing for a male to do when they went back to the synagogue. They might be asked to read from the scripture. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, they didn't have one Bible with all the books. They had different scrolls for kind of every book, and so he got the Isaiah scroll. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And here's a quote, and this this would be in Isaiah 61 in your Bible. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a reference to what's called the year of Jubilee. Uh, That's in the Old Testament and there's a lot to that. I'm not going to get into it tonight. If you've never studied it, I encourage you to kind of look it up. Google it, those kind of things. Uh, It's a really interesting uh, idea that was probably never came to fruition in Jewish history, but uh, was a part of their kind of theological framework. So to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is a time when all the debts are forgiven and and, uh, slaves are set free, Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Not a very long sermon, but impactful, right? All, who, all, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? And Mary said, well, long story. (laughs) So Jesus gets up in front of the people that have known him since he was a kid. He is given uh, the scroll of Isaiah, and he chooses to open it up, to make the effort, which is not easy, rolling a scroll, to get to this particular portion of Isaiah. And he reads this very potent and beautiful scripture about this good news for the poor, release for the captives, healing for those who need it. And perhaps just as importantly is when he stops reading. Mid-verse, Jesus rolls the scroll back up without reading the next line. And the next line is about God setting things right in another way. You have, good news for the poor, you have release of the captives sight of the blind, you know, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and if you keep reading in Isaiah 61, and if you know these verses after the year of the Lord's favor, it says and the day of vengeance of our God so not only is God going to help those out in need, but God's going to pay back those who deserve it, except Jesus doesn't mention that part just rolls it back up like it's not there Seems pretty important to me that you would stop mid-sentence. But seemingly the crowd is happy enough at this good news that they don't realize that Jesus has forgotten to pronounce judgment on their enemies. This really should have been their first clue about what was coming, but it's understandable they missed it. Hometown boy comes back, finds this place, reads this thing, and claims that it is being done in their presence. And this really is good news It's understandable they would be excited about it. This small community in Nazareth needs these kind of words. They have suffered under Roman rule for a long time. They have experienced some awful things, including infanticide, which happened when Jesus was born, right? They have suffered. They have experienced awful things. And Jesus says that the fulfillment is coming of all those promises, all those things for everyone who is poor and oppressed, all they've been dreaming about and talking about, it's all coming together right now in this reading, right? This is their guy, and he comes right from our little town. We know him. They can hardly believe that this is coming from Joseph's son. How lucky can you get? Again, Jesus cuts off his reading of Isaiah, and there's some things to think about in regard to that, but it it shows at least one thing, and that is he's capable of stopping in the right place when he wants to, of choosing where to stop talking. And if he had wanted to, he could have stopped talking right now, and they would have loved him. They're all excited about what he's been talking about. They're all so impressed with this guy. But sometimes, and I'm sure you've never done this, you've talked just enough and things are good, but you just can't stop talking. And you say too much. Sometimes you talk a little too long and your fans turn into enemies. Again, I know no one in this room has ever done that. Everyone in this room knows exactly when to be quiet. I have done it many times in my life. And I had it done to me just a couple weeks ago. You know, you, you have these moments where you've, you've been in an argument, you finally hash it out, you get on the same page, but you say that one more thing and you ruin it, right? And I, I've been in this situation in my during the week job. We're having to work with this statewide organization on some federal money, and it has been the bane of our existence for 12 months now. It's a good thing. It's helping out a lot of people, but it has been torture. And uh, it is safe to say that my attitude towards uh, the agency that we're dealing with and the particular person who's in charge of us in this um, has been less than Christ-like um, and has been strained because it's just been inexplicably difficult and made hard. And it's just, it's just one of those things where I just can't wrap my mind around why it has to be this way, right? It just doesn't make sense. And we've had this kind of combative and unreasonable relationship, and it has worn us out for a year. And we finally got on this call uh, where... Um, I said, look, we just need to talk for a minute. And I had a bit of a heart-to-heart with someone. I'm not friends with them, and they really didn't need to create that space, but I did. I thought, if we can just create a little empathy in this situation, if they can just understand what it's like from our side, maybe they'll you know, get off the gas pedal a little bit here and be a little more understanding. And so we had a bit of a heart-to-heart heart there. And honestly, it went surprisingly well. I was very honest. I wasn't mean, but I was very honest about what I was struggling with and what I didn't like and what I thought was unfair and why I thought it was. And I asked them to understand what it's like uh, from this side of things and what we're trying to deal with and how we're trying to do it in good faith. And it doesn't feel like they're wrong. I mean, I, I, I laid it all out there, right? And, and I, th- I feel like he heard it and then and then he talked about some things from his side he answered some hard questions and he kind of didn't answer some other hard questions but he answered some hard questions and that's better than what we've been getting and we were making real progress i wouldn't say we were going to go hang out and have a beer together or anything but um i didn't want to punch him anymore and that's a that's a good start in that kind of situation right i mean we were getting there we were having progress it was going surprisingly well i felt good for the first time about this person and uh, and and kind of our relationship, working relationship, we were about to hang up, and I was thinking, wow, I can't believe how well this went. and I'm going to tell all the other folks uh, how well this went, and maybe this is maybe we're all turning over a new leaf, and new things are happening here. And then he he kept talking. We were good. I mean, we were good. And then he offered this final little uh, metaphor, where he said, "I'm glad we really hurt each other because you know," he said, basically. I feel like, and then he told this little story, and essentially to make it short, he ended up comparing himself to a mother who kind of hurts their child by snatching them away from the road and having to throw them to the side to keep them from getting hit by a truck. And it's hard to be that mother because you kind of hurt the child, but you're protecting them. And he should have left that part out. because I was not ready to hear someone 15 years younger than me that uh, I've been struggling with anyways, um, compare themselves to my mother uh, rescuing me from a truck. And I just didn't need the, um, I hurt you because I love you metaphor. That was not really what I was what I was there for. And because, you know, he's not my mother. And in our situation, I think he's driving the truck on the sidewalk in a crowded neighborhood and that's really where the problem is at, right? So he just if he just if he just were to let it go like we would have been okay and instead we hung up and uh and, and now i i can't stop being mad about it right so you, you got to know when to stop quit when you're ahead right uh, and jesus just doesn't do it here everyone's on his side the whole home church loves him. they're excited about it if he just stops there Verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we heard you did in Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all of Israel, uh, and a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. That's a Gentile, that's a non-Jew. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. That's a Gentile soldier, someone who actually fought. I guess Israel at some point. When they heard all this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove them out of the town, That means like pushed him out. They didn't have cars. They drove him out of the town. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. That's one version of stoning. They they stoned some people by throwing rocks at them and sometimes you throw people at rocks. They're both considered stoning. They were going to throw him at rocks. Verse 30, and and here's the the kind of a mystical part of the passage, right? But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. (laughs) How do you make good news into bad news in just a couple of sentences. Jesus lays it out really well here if you were wondering how to do that in your life. It's real easy. The way you turn good news into bad news in just a couple of sentences is you tell me that the good news that you were just telling me about is for the people I don't like. But remember that God fed the Gentile widow when there was famine for your widows too. Remember, lots of people needed it, but God healed the Gentile soldier. In other words, maybe you're not the central characters in this whole story. Maybe you don't hold this special place among the world. Maybe the good news is not just for you or even first for you, the way you automatically assume that it is. And then you will notice a slight shift in the attitude from the congregation. They all spoke well of him, so they are all filled with rage. And this is his first sermon. He gets people homicidal, right? Listen, I have preached a lot of sermons, and I've only been physically threatened once. In Northern Ireland, where someone threatened to test the turn-the-other-cheek theory on me that I had preached about. He didn't actually try to kill me. He wanted to, but he didn't. And that wasn't even my first sermon in my home church. I mean, this is next-level stuff that Jesus is doing here. But I get it. I mean, if I'm honest, it makes sense to me. The most offensive thing you can be is gracious to the wrong people. I think it's hardwired in us as human beings. I mean, I don't know how else to explain the way we act. We are a tribal kind of people. We love our team. We love our team doesn't have to make sense. doesn't have to be based on reality. We love our team. The clearest example I ever saw of this was when I was in college and I was working with a youth group. And on Sunday morning in church, we were there, and uh, this guy in the church worked for the radio station. He said, hey, I've got some free tickets to an event this afternoon. Do you want to take some youth and go for free? And free was like my favorite word in college, right? And so I'm like, yeah, what is it? And he said, WWF is in town, professional wrestling. And I went from, yeah, that'd be great, to absolutely, yes, I want to do that. I'd never gone and seen professional wrestling. I used to watch it when I was a kid. I absolutely wanted to do that, And I knew my high school guys would want to go see it too. right? So a whole bunch of us went down to the (laughs) the big arena. And it was obvious why they were giving away some tickets, because there wasn't a whole lot of, not not a ton of people there. But I took a couple of high school guys to this wrestling event. And we were on the way, and we were getting kind of excited about it. None of us had seen it before. And someone had the idea. I don't know. Honestly, it was probably me. It sounds like some idea I would have. But we decided, hey, why don't we go and root for the bad guys? Right? Because whenever you see it on TV, everyone boos the bad guys, and everyone cheers the good guys. And we're like, why don't we go? Let's just go sell out for the bad guys. Let's cheer for them. Let's, you know, whistle for them. And then when good guys come out, let's boo them. Let's just just flip the script. And we thought, that'll be funny, right? Because, yeah, because it's hilarious. We think we all know that. And we were old enough and sane enough to know that The teams were fake, right? There are no good guys and bad guys. All these guys are going to the same bar together afterwards. In fact, when you see it live, you can see them talking to each other and not really punching each other. And it's even worse than on TV where they choose the camera angles. So we're like, we're going to proudly root for the villains because that'll be funny. We just were loud and proud and having a good time. As it turns out, the rest of the crowd was much less entertained by us than we were. What I thought would just be funny was deeply offensive to the people sitting around us. As it turns out, other people paid for their tickets and really loved it and really felt strongly about the good guys and the bad guys. It's unclear to me whether or not they thought this was all real or not, uh, which is a little problematic. But um, we experienced, I mean, real anger. I mean, visceral Physical anger from people around us. I mean, scream at us, cuss at us, throw food at us. Anger from the people, and that's not inexpensive food. Uh, we're talking about like you know ten dollar hot dogs at a place like that, and we're getting stuff thrown at. It. People were livid, and which we just thought was funnier because uh, we're bad people. But um, but it was also uh, it was it was it was funny, but it was also slightly disturbing and very revealing about human nature, right, because this is us. You may not follow professional wrestling. I kind of hope you don't, to be honest with you. If you do, that's cool if that's your thing. We may not believe in the professional wrestling, but this is us. Deep down, if we are honest, we know it's stupid. We know it's somewhat fake, but we have our team, right? We know that most of the time there's not really anything different from one team to another, right? The person I most dislike on their team, if he was wearing my team's uniform, would be amazing, and I would buy his jersey and and scream on on his behalf. You know, when Hulk Hogan dyes his beard uh, black and wears black trunks, he suddenly becomes the worst human being instead of a real American hero. I mean, that's the kind of thing that happened in wrestling, right? We know on some level that it's not real, but we love our teams, We will live and die by the invented differences between us. Because I'm a human being, and we humans love the teams. They're a complete invention, but they make the world a whole lot easier. They divide the world between the white hats and the black hats, the good and the evil, the winners and the losers, those who are in and those who are out, the us and the them. And that is a little easier way to navigate the world, to be honest. And once I have adopted the team, once I'm on the team and I've claimed it as my team, I am ready to pay for the hats. I'm ready to learn the chants. I'm ready to scream at the refs because team, right? It's our team. And then Jesus has the nerve to go and bless the bad guy. And now we've got to throw him off a cliff because there's some things you just can't do, even if you're Jesus, right? The most upsetting thing about Jesus throughout his ministry seems to be his insistence that news is only good if it's good for your enemies as well. The news is only good if it's good for your enemies as well. As much as we want to believe in the freedom and the release and the salvation and all, those good, all that good news stuff that Jesus talks about first, We are not convinced it can really be good news for us unless it's also bad news for them. I need the day of the Lord's vengeance. I'm all for the Lord's favor for me as long as that also leads to God's vengeance for them. But Jesus wouldn't go there. We're happy to go on his behalf, but Jesus didn't go there. I don't know if you've had this experience or not. I've been a part of a lot of churches. I've worked at several churches. I've been a member of and even worked at um, many churches that had nothing to say to anyone who considered themselves a member or represented the church, had nothing to say to them if they were unkind or inhospitable or ungracious or, you know, completely lacking in love of their neighbor or those around them. You could be a greeter at the door or a member of the staff and be all those things but you'd be asked to leave that day if you were gracious to the wrong people. That was the line in the sand. And that's not hyperbole. You didn't actually have to be anything in particular as long as you wore the right uniform and were angry at the right people and you cheered against the wrong team. And I just don't see anything that could be further from the ministry of Christ because of course this is not how grace works. If God's favor is only ever unmerited, then there are no teams, there are no uniforms. We are all in the same boat. All have fallen short, whatever verse you wanna use. If grace is true, then teams are not. And there may not be a more valuable witness that we as followers of Christ can bear in our world today than that truth. Because teams are everything right now, and it's killing us. You don't have to look very far. You don't have to look very far in our politics and our social media to see the way teams are killing us, right? How central it is to us as people. I wouldn't have thought it was possible before the last two years that a virus could somehow be a team sport. The fact that you can largely pinpoint a person's political bent by the way they have approached a virus is the height of absurdity. And I'm not casting stones. I I think all of us, I'll I'll say for me, maybe you too, but I think most of us have probably made a decision or two in the last couple years that were based less in science than our desire to signal what team we were on. Anyone else confess to that? I've done it. Could anything make less sense than that (laughs) in regards to a virus? But that's how deeply ingrained it is to us. Everything gets moved to this team play. And this is a problem because as followers of Jesus, we don't belong to any of those teams. Instead, the followers of Christ should be walking a path of grace. Instead, we're wearing uniforms like everyone else, and that's a problem. In fact, we're the first ones on the team, often. Which, I would say by this scripture, is equivalent to just going ahead and throwing Jesus off the cliff. Or maybe scarier, it's what leads to God walking right through the community and leaving us behind. And I know, I'm with you, nothing feels more important and urgent than the team. That's how they work. Nothing feels more important than the team. But we must remember that the news is only good if it's good for everyone. The news is only good if it's good for everyone. And we, as followers of Christ, should know better than to confuse professional wrestling for anything that's real. Let's pray.